Welcome, everybody, to the Eyes on Big Podcast, your go-to Big Ten football podcast. I'm your co-host, Jeffrey the Greek, joined, as always, by... This is Big Kurt here. Big Kurt, you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. Big Kurt on Twitter at B1GKURT. And I am Jeffrey the Greek at Jeffrey the Greek. Not only are we on Twitter, but we are both on a laptop right now. Um, technically, I'm still in the downstairs athletic club, but couldn't quite get the schedules to match up, which means we are, we are doing this via technology, which I appreciate. Always, always makes Big Kurt's skin crawl a little bit. But it kind of it, it falls in line with the theme of this podcast where we're interviewing three Big Ten fans remotely. Yeah. So we're just kind of we're, we're in the same pool splashing around at this point. We don't want to make them feel weird. Like, why is my audio not as good as your audio? <laughs> See, that's how big a team players we are. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, uh, Big Kurt, very we, like I said, we very much appreciate you having the uh, the commitment uh to having a plus audio right now we had to do little b minus audio hopefully our, our listeners don't mind um but uh maybe potentially we our next one will be the same because i will be hitting the road soon going to montana the great state of montana that's going to start out as a a business trip and then work in my family and we're going to be in montana over the fourth um so, so my, my middle brother and I, Darren, the American, who we hope to have on the podcast soon, we, we'd always say, we, we're going to go off to the wilds of Montana, which is from the TV show, made for TV show movie, whatever you call it, Lonesome Dove. You, you, you've never seen Lonesome Dove, though. I've never seen Lonesome Dove, but I was looking it up on the IMDb's and heck of a cast, man. Oh, it's amazing. It's so I think maybe Robert Duvall's performance as Augustus McRae, I would put it up there definitely in the top 10 performances of any movie I've ever watched in my life, maybe top five or three. He's amazing. Um, uh, Woodrow Call is, um, see, now, now that Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones. And then maybe the, the best uh, uh, cast in the entire movie is a young Diane Lane. As that's, the, not, that's who I was just going to bring up. Oh, she is the prostitute with a heart of gold. I, I mean, Diane Lane was hot all through her 30s, 40s, whatever, but she, she is off the charts hot in this movie. Like, it's worth it watching just for her. Okay, now I'm definitely going to watch it. Also, Danny Glover. Yes. Is in this movie, D.B. Sweeney, who I love, Angelica yep. Houston, Chris Cooper, really underrated actor. And also, let's see, good on the line. Uh, oh, Steve Buscemi is in it. Dude, it's, it's, it's insane. It's probably that's, that's a great cast, man. And a lot of those people you just named, you know, it was before they were a big deal. Um, so they're but they were still great actors, you know, but it was before they exploded. So they they're in this TV series. It's the production's off the charts. It's essentially like I don't think I'm putting it too far out there to say it's like a godfather quality w- movie, but it's it's you know four hours long. I mean, I think it was. You know, oh, okay, so it's like a four-part series or something. Oh yeah, yeah. You're gonna you're gonna have to get okay. settled in and watch it. But anyways, the Augustus. The whole point is they're driving cattle from Texas all the way up to Montana, and it's it's all the you know travesties and everything that happened on the way. So, well, I've driven on up to Montana once. Yeah, well, I'll be I will be driving out and then staying for a spell and driving right back. I loved it. Only went one time, but went to the far northwest corner, and it was up by Glacier, 
National Park. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Maybe we should talk. Flathead Lake was unbelievable. Went out on Flathead Lake. I'll be all around. I'll be in Missoula. I'll be in Bozeman. And then we're going to settle in in Big Sky, uh, which is only like 45 minutes north of Yellowstone. So we might try to try to get down there. I'll maybe I should shut up now because I'm probably going to want to talk all about it by the time I get back. So um, you got to do Yellowstone if you're that close. Yeah, have to do that. Um, Yeah, so we are going to do just a couple housekeeping slash topics. Um, and then we will go over who were uh, uh, record or uh, uh, who the interviews we did right now. So we're going to do another East West East. Uh, so we're going to do Penn State with our boy Perk at Perkins Penguins to follow on Twitter. Uh, then we will do Northwestern with Chappie. He's, he, now we're making a little bit of exception there, of course, because we, we tried to do by the fans, for the fans, for the fans, by the fans, whatever. We cheated for Chappie because he's technically a part of Wildcat Report, but let's be honest, it's it's worth it to cheat for Chappie, right? Yep, and Wildcat Report is part of the Rivals Network. Rivals Network, so. And let's be honest, Chappie does not hide his Northwestern purple blood at all, so he is definitely a fan first. I don't think there's he, any question about that. He definitely is, but if you ever read any of his stuff, his like uh, scouting stuff pregame, it's outstanding, and it's not. I don't consider it biased at all. I just consider it incredibly insightful and in depth. 100%. He is a walking college football encyclopedia. And you'll get a taste of that in the interview that will be shortly following this. And then last but not least is, is chop with Rutgers. So we got a Chappie and then we got a chop. Um, you know, I know we probably don't have a ton of Rutgers fans or historians, but chop is, and, you know, I'm trying to tease this as best I can. Chop did a phenomenal job. All three of them did. I, I don't want to overshadow any of them. That's going to make me – I'm just trying to maybe stick up for Rutgers and Chop a little bit. Give, give Chop's segment a listen. It's, it's fantastic. He does a great job. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. All right. Anything you want to start at for kind of the housekeeping whatnot? Hate to disappoint you. I don't have any housekeeping this week. Yeah, it's been a little slow out there, hasn't it? It has. We can talk about the SCOTUS decision about amateurism in the NCAA. It's been covered ad nauseum nationally. I don't know how much more we can add, but at some point we can add a little bit. Yeah, I mean, essentially, I I mini dug into it. I, I felt like even we've touched on it before by talking about the NIL. I mean, essentially what this was was the official the official word from the Supreme Court saying, yes, uh, paying athletes are letting them profit off their again name image likeness is officially ruled in favor uh at a, at a nine to oh vote um so you know the other team didn't even score a touchdown i doubt they even crossed the 50 yard line in this case so we are heading towards the nil officially yeah a couple things the 9-0 was really i mean that really hammered at home right correct but then my next question and i'm no lawyer i'm no constitutional lawyer here but how come this didn't happen a hundred years ago? Yeah. And that's the funny thing that you've seen is now all of a sudden there's some ADs and I don't think you've seen a ton of coaches, but now all of a sudden everybody's like, well, long time decision. This is obviously what needs to happen. It's like, right now you're going to say that a lot of the same people haven't been saying that for years. Yeah. It's just strange. I mean, I'm, I don't know when the NCAA was, was found here. I just found it. Okay. 1906. Okay. 115 years it took to do that. Now, okay, now that's not completely fair. Obviously, 
the amount of money that was being made off of the amateurism has exploded. I mean, it's grown exponentially over the yeah. past 30 years or so, I would say. Yeah. So obviously comparing, you know, 1958 or whatever to 2021 isn't the same thing. But I would say starting about 10, 15 years ago is when is when it probably would have made sense at any point then. Is that fair? Yeah, that is fair. It was, yeah, much, yeah you're talking about much lower dollars. But even, I mean, you, you can even go back to like the 80s. There were still millions of dollars being thrown around. Yeah. Um, and I certainly didn't sit there and listen to, you know, the entire session, if you will. Um, but I think it's fair to say that uh justice kavanaugh went even further than he had to like he even kind of opened up doors that weren't even brought to to light saying you know they should be able to make money off this and that so um long story short the the part that i don't think has you know really gotten figured out yet is is i think think we've learned a lot over the past 18 months that state laws have maybe a little bit more power than any of us uh, understood so that's obviously going to play into this. I think a lot of state legislators were essentially waiting for the federal government to, to make more of a ruling. So we have a big step in that process with the Supreme Court. There's still a couple dynamos that are going to fall. But in the end, NIL is happening and it's, it's pretty much official now. Yeah, there's going to be, you know, some states that are going to make it as advantageous as possible for the athletes. Um, a lot of those states are probably going to reside south of the Mason-Dixon line, I think. Yeah. So, I was going to say, they're going to be the states that are in the SEC footprint in Nebraska. Yeah, yeah. And, but that, it's, and Texas. By the way, that's, well, not a, okay, that's, that's not a knock on any of those states I just named. They're doing what they feel like they need to do to help out their football programs. That's what I, I want. I want all the states to do it in the Big Ten football, football uh, footprint as well. Yeah, I just have very little faith in the the lawmakers in my home state of Illinois. <laughs> well, I'll leave that one alone. But yeah, <laughs> we we will. Say, I mean, in the end, it it's either get on the ship or get left behind. And I I think everybody's going to be on the ship at some point. Yeah. Okay. Um, another thing I uh, to bring up is uh, me, you, and the uh, Carthaginian. We were at a football camp recently and we had kind of a we won't go into too big a detail but we had kind of a fun conversation right we did we did with a a noted uh you know offensive coach that's been around the block at many a school at a couple couple big 10 institutions at a pac 12 institution um down at the sec for a year it was we sat and talked to him for a good 30 45 minutes it was fantastic um you know, and he gave us a little bit more light behind, you know, the recruiting restrictions that uh, have been happening for the past year, um, how those all of a sudden were lifted and recruited. recruiting has just exploded. He did a good job of kind of explaining that. It's not often that you get to just sit there and hang out for a half hour, 35, 40 minutes with a college football mind like that. I mean, we didn't get deep into X's and O's. It was just it was just dudes talking college football and it was pretty cool. It was fun, man. And I had actually, uh, as, as we talked in, in the discussion, I had, I had met him many years back and, and this was, so this is my second time actually having a similar, you know, similar conversation. I sat and chatted him up the first time. So it was, it was fun to revisit 25 years later. Yeah. Uh, and we were there to watch a young performer perform. I will let the identity remain a mystery. I don't want to, 
get too deep into that, but uh, uh, we got to watch some live football drills. I mean, Kurt and I are, <laughs> and a lot of other people, I think it's fair to say, we're jonesing so much for live football, man. I got a kick just watch, kick out of just watching those drills. Yeah, it's always fun being around football. Oh my gosh, watching a football up in the air, athletes competing. <laughs> Maybe it was like a nice little appetizer before the football season starts. It was fun, man. All right. Well, with that being said, you got anything else to add before the interviews? No, let's get into it. All right. So first up, as we mentioned, is our boy Perk. Here we go. All right. We have got our number one Penn State Nittany Lion fan here, MJ underscore Perk at Perkins Penguins. Perk, how you doing this evening? Good, man. Thanks for having me on. Um, as you know, I've been a, a loyal listener to the pod for a while now, and uh, we communicate you know, pretty regularly. So it's, a, it's an honor to be on here and talk some ball with you. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, when we kind of came up with this idea, you know, by the fans, for the fans, uh, when we thought about Penn State, there was nobody else we even considered. We were coming <laughs> to you first, Perk. So I'm, I'm glad you can make it on the podcast, my man. Absolutely. All right, we will jump right into our regular five questions. So first off, kind of a two-part question, you know, why you are a Penn State fan and then kind of wrapped around that, what's your best memory of being a Penn State football fan? Yeah, so I'll kind of start off a little background about myself. Uh, So both my parents met at Penn State their freshman year. So, you know, met at Penn State, um, both from the Pittsburgh area, but didn't know each other before college type of thing. So really had no choice uh, growing up. You know, I was going to be a Penn State fan. Uh, Childhood dog's name was Nittany and everything. So (laughs) we, uh, you know, Penn State through and through. And I have kind of memories as a young kid of going up to State College. We'd run an RV with some family friends and drive up on a Friday, spend the night, uh, you know, tailgate for the game. And obviously I wasn't of drinking age yet, but um kind of really early, you know, memories of going up to games as a kid. So, Fantastic. Then how uh, about uh, what's uh, maybe more in your, in your adulting years, what's a yeah. great memory that you remember? Yeah. So um, I'm going to go more the route of kind of like my favorite, favorite season or Penn state team where I kind of really got, you know, hooked on, on Penn state. So I was a little too young to, well, definitely too young for the 1994 team. Uh, that went undefeated with Kerry Collins. And I remember the 99 team that started 9-0 with LeVar, uh, number one team in the nation, but kind of still too young to appreciate it. And then, you know, people kind of forget Penn State won that lull in the early 2000s under Joe Pa. Uh, they kind of were off the radar for four or five years. And then it was really the 2005 season. Uh, they had Derek Williams coming in, number one recruit in the nation. So there's, you know, some hype around the program type of thing. And Started off, I think it was 6-0, and had a, uh, a big comeback win against Northwestern. Um, I think they beat Minnesota after that next and, and blew out a ranked Minnesota team that was good that year. And that's kind of the moment you knew, like, you know, Penn State might be back type of thing. And, um, you know, long story short, went on to be 11-1 and that year. That was the, the Mario Manningham-Michigan game, which is yes, uh, okay. still haunts me from time to time. And so – Was that Daryl – Clark quarterback or I'm way off in my way off. Uh, Michael Robinson. Michael Robinson. Okay. All right. Yes. They had uh, Michael Robinson, Derek Williams, uh, Paul Puzlesny on the defensive yeah. side. So that was the, uh, the team that, you know, it was actually the Vince Young, Reggie Bush, USC, Texas year. So Penn state finished number three in the AP pool. Um, and everybody just remembers that Texas, you know, USC epic national championship game, but it's kind of one of those things where if Penn state had, 
either gone undefeated or if one of those two teams slipped up, it actually would have been Penn State in the national championship that year. So uh, just, you know, just memories of that season and following along and rooting for Fresno State to try to pull off the upset against USC late in the year. Uh, that I think that season just really got me kind of into college football. Fantastic. Great answer, man. Thanks for, for sharing all that. Okay. Next one's kind of fun, right? Uh, this is your chance to, to kind of, you know, vent a little bit. Right. What do <laughs> national writers, podcasters, uh, you know, uh, people on the radio, what do they get wrong the most about Penn State? Yeah. So kind of go kind of part A, part B here. So the, the number one thing that I've kind of been hearing even more recently, and I think it's maybe partly recency bias with the last season that, disappointing season that Penn State had last year but you know kind of hearing oh James Franklin's this great recruiter but you know he he wastes his talent or you know I think it's just the uh the stigma of the not being able to get over the hump against Ohio State and you know we live in this um college football kind of uh like era where the CFP or bust as we you know as we know and you've talked about on the pod so because Penn State hasn't broken through I think they kind of have this reputation of kind of wasting talent. So I'm going to kind of just throw a few facts out here. And this is just strictly trying to stick to the facts. So the average recruiting ranking of the last, well, it's not the last five years because, you know, these young freshmen really haven't made an impact yet. But if you look at their 24-7 uh, composite rank from 2015 to 2019, they're recruiting, they finished 14th, 20th, 15, 6, and 12, okay. which is good. But people kind of act like Franklin's pulling in top five classes every year, and it's just not the case. I mean, they're kind of averaging around that 14, 15 mark in the country. So now when you look think at, about where they've finished a lot, they're actually finishing exactly. relatively lower than where their recruiting rankings at. That's actually a phenomenal point. Yep. So if you look at the same kind of time frame, 2016 to 2020, they're, as you just said, their final AP poll rank 7th, 8th, 17th, 9th. And then obviously last year they weren't ranked. So kind of the median outcome there was ninth. So they've finished top 10 three years, but they've only actually pulled in a top 10 class under Franklin once. So I think he does get a little bit of a bad rap in terms of not being able to produce with the talent because it's kind of on par or even outpacing the uh, the recruiting side. That's fantastic. Um, and like, and that, I, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say the part B is real quick, uh, kind of along those same lines is that the national writers kind of like they don't believe Penn State's going to be good until they see it type of thing. So they assume teams like Georgia, Florida, Texas A&M is just going to reload every year. And Penn State, it's kind of like a wait and see approach. And it's like how many how many top running backs does Penn State have to pump in the NFL before national writers are going to say, you know, I don't know who maybe the top guy's going to be, but whoever's in that Penn State backfield is going to be really good. You know, and they don't quite get that same level of respect as some other teams. I'm with you there. I mean, I know me and you have DM on that before, um, you know, comparing Penn State to, I mean, typically it's a lot of SEC teams that we compare, right. but, you know, even some uh, program as atrocious as Tennessee seems to get more of a benefit of the doubt from the national writers than friggin' Penn State when we all know the consistency, you know, last year was obviously a weird year, but like other than that, the consistency of Penn State compared to somebody like Tennessee is it's not even close yet the way ESPN and some of the other, you know, national pundits talk about, you would think they would almost in the same, same boat, you know, and it's ridiculous. I'm, I'm with you there. So those are, I mean, that's an excellent point you're bringing up. Yep, definitely. 
All right. Uh, so that'll get us into kind of focusing on the 2021 season. So the first one, what excites you the most for the 2021 version of Penn State? So I think my uh, I'm most excited just to uh, see less quarterback draws. <laughs> and I'm being a little tongue in cheek there, but, um, you know, just having a real offseason under Mike Yerkich to uh, to be able to, you know, gel and, and grow the chemistry that all these talented weapons have. I mean, you've got Jahan Dodson, Parker Washington, Keandre Lambert-Smith, uh, Noah Kane, Keziah Holmes, Kevon, like endless talent on the offensive side of the ball. And every other play was quarterback draw, run up the middle. I mean, they just, they didn't trust, you know, the quarterback situation. And I think having a real off season with spring ball and practices and being able to kind of integrate Yerkich's system is kind of what I'm most excited to see if they can really take that next step of when you watch Penn State's offense, you know, it's exciting again, like that 2016 team with, Saquon and Chris Godwin and Gasicki. I mean, they have talent, you know, not quite at that level, but pretty darn close. So kind yeah. of just to see the, the progression on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, obviously, a, you know, a ton of the concentration on the uh, offensive talent, the Big Ten East typically goes to Ohio State receivers, whatnot. Definitely not taking anything away from Ohio State, but I don't think people understand just how much talent and potential is on Penn State. You know, even somebody right. just, just, just Parker Washington alone. Like I think uh, Jahan Dotson turned a lot of heads last year, but I think a lot of people are going to learn about, about um, uh, Parker Washington, and a couple other guys this year. So, yep, um, for sure. but I'm kind of wondering if this also ties into what concerns <laughs> you the most about the 2021 team. Yep. I think we're on the same page there and you'd be kidding yourself as a Penn state fan. If you said you weren't a little bit nervous about the quarterback situation, um, you know, I personally think last year was a bit of an anomaly. And once it, uh, once Sean Clifford kind of started to make some mistakes, it kind of spiraled on them. And I think kind of getting a clean slate, a new system, um, like I said, a real off season, I'm optimistic that that Clifford can kind of get back to some of what he showed in uh, 2019, but kind of until you see it, you know, it's, that's kind of the wild card this year. hundred percent. And, you know, like I've heard people say, I think Sean Clifford has a ceiling. I don't even know if I would, agree with that because I don't think we know what Sean Clifford's ceiling is. It could be lower than what we think it is. It could be higher. I still feel like, you know, he's kind of an enigma wrapped in a riddle. Yep, for sure. And I will point out, you know, Taquan Roberson has made strides and he was a former four-star dual threat quarterback. Um, and then Christian Veyu, who they brought in as a true freshman, also kind of, uh, you know, a gunslinger type guy. So they've got, they've got some options as, as Kurt alluded to on the last pod that, you know, if Clifford, you know, stumbles at all, there's, he better be looking over his shoulder because there are guys in that room that, you know, that are above average talents in the big time. Fantastic. That gets to our fifth and final question. General prediction feeling for the 2021 Penn State Nittany Lions. Yeah. So this was kind of a part B of the last question of what kind of makes you nervous. So aside from quarterback, it's kind of the schedule setup um, and going to, you know, Madison in week one is really kind of a boomer bust game because if they look good and beat Wisconsin, that could kind of springboard them, you know, and put last year in the rear view mirror. But if they lose that game or, or look sloppy against Wisconsin, you know, it kind of brings into question the, uh, the, the trend that the team is on. So that game is going to really swing, I think the, the record, but I've got them kind of at a floor of eight and four and a ceiling of kind of 11 and one say, if, you know, if they beat Wisconsin, I think they, they have a tough game actually against ball state in week two. And then uh, 
get to beat up on some some SEC Heine in week three when Auburn comes up to Happy Valley. So I really could see them starting off, you know, five and zero type of deal. And uh, and if that happens, you know, maybe eleven ones and and you know in the ballpark. All right, I think that's uh, that's not even too fanatic. That that just you know that, that's <laughs> that's a baseline fan yeah, reaction not- right there. So. I'm not going to go as far as to say 12 and 0, and they're going to beat Ohio State, but um, you know, I'll, I'll cap it at 11 and 1 for this team. So. Okay, fair enough. All right, man, fantastic. You got anything else you want to add before we before we finish up here? Uh, I don't think so. The only thing I was going to say, kind of along the lines of, what do people get wrong about uh, Penn State on a national scale? This is more from the fan side. So I do think Penn State sometimes gets this uh, kind of stigma that the fans are. You know, it's not a fun in, or it's not a, a welcoming environment for opposing fans. And, you know, in my experience, and at least the people I tailgate with, they go out of their way to make sure that the opposing fans have a great experience, a great time. So I would just say if you ever get the chance to go up to Happy Valley for a game, you know, don't be don't be nervous that you're going to be treated poorly because 90, you know, 90 percent of the fan base is going to treat you pretty well. And I, I haven't made it there yet as a fan. I, I hope to sometime soon, but I can actually, my parents and a part of our tailgate crew have gone several times. They would reiterate exactly what you just said right now. Penn State fans have actually mostly been awesome to them when they've been there. So, all right, Perk, that's going to do it for us, man. I really appreciate you joining us. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me on. All right. See you later. All right. Yep. Talk to you later. All right. We are now joined by our resident Northwestern football and general college football know-it-all. This is Chappie at champion underscore lit. Chappie, how you doing this fine evening? Mr. The Greek, I'm doing well, man. Summer has started and it's college football preview season. I don't, I don't like to really buy into the whole that there's an off season because I'm sure, you know, you never stop thinking about it. You never stop talking about it, but this is preview time, man. And I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, I, you know, I, I try to take a little bit of a pause in the winter, you know, like try to get into basketball and wrestling, but like, I just feel like it's gone even quicker. And then all of a sudden you look up mid to late summer and I mean, we're, we're right on the cusp of this thing. It feels like. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, the, for me, the quickest turnaround from the end of one season to what seems like the beginning of the next. And I don't know if it's because of COVID and what we experienced last year, but I frankly am, am ready for it. Let's get week zero here. Cannot wait, man. I, it's always good to talk to somebody that is geeked about this stuff as me. And obviously that anybody that follows you on Twitter knows that you are. And, and I'll just preface this by saying we are using Chappie as the Northwestern fan. Um, Chappie doesn't just know Northwestern. He, he knows pretty much any college football team that you could uh, quiz him on. Uh, but we'll we'll just take it easy on him because, you know, this is just one team and his favorite team that we can ask questions about today. So this will be a lot of fun. Okay, so we are going to go into the same template that we've used for everybody else. Uh, so the first question is kind of a two-part question. Tell us why you are a Northwestern football fan, and then kind of best you can fold that into what's your best memory of being a Wildcat fan. Well, coincidentally, it folds into the same season. So I became a Northwestern fan from that 1995 Rose Bowl season when they finished the regular season ranked third in the country, played USC, had a couple bad breaks in that game and, and couldn't finish off what was such a, a wonderful campaign. But, you know, I, I've talked with you guys before. I was actually a Penn State fan before that. But just the way that it all happened, just that miracle season. And gosh, I really wish that you guys knew somebody who would put this into a book and there's something that your readers <laughs> or your listeners could uh, read about. But um, 
no, that's, that's really what, what did it for me. And um, so I always kind of back Northwestern as like my second team. And then when all that stuff went down at, at Penn state, I, I couldn't be a Penn state guy um, in full faith anymore. And, and so Northwestern was an obvious team to jump to. And, you know, because of that, now I, I've propelled that into being a, a writer for the team and, and covering them on Wildcat Report. And it's just been a, it's been a great experience. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a diehard, that's for sure. So did not grow up in Illinois in the shadows of the football stadium or anything like that, correct? Grew up in a, in a, in a different state. Um, yeah, I, I, I grew up surrounded by Wolverine fans, and we'll just leave it at that. But okay. not a Michigan guy. <laughs> All right, so pretty unique there, but hey, in the end, obviously huge Northwestern fan. Maybe just can you have one favorite moment from that '95 season that sticks out to this day? Yeah, it was the Rose Bowl. I, I it was really just—I mean, growing up and seeing the traditional teams like Michigan, Ohio State, Michigan State, Iowa. Uh, throwing that in there for you, uh, seeing those teams and and the painted end zones with those names, it was just really cool to see a different team there, especially a team that had experienced uh, a quarter century of just losing. And we're not just talking losing, like just missing on the cusp of a bowl season. We're talking complete futility, the NCAA record for the longest losing streak, I hate to say, but it was just a, a really cool experience to see that team there and not just be there, but they actually played a good game. You know, I was kind of worried that it was going to be one of those issues where they would show up and, maybe get trounced because the culture hadn't been built there yet, but they, they gave USC a great fight. And, and it was just, that was the, the culmination of such a great season. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, Northwestern was recruiting me to begin 1995, but not as much as they were getting more and more success <laughs> at the end of the year. Uh, but the other thing I remember is, you know, like you said, Michigan, uh, Ohio state, uh, Iowa, Penn state had made it like you kind of were used to the same, you know, uh, blue and red and black colors, seeing that purple that's so unique to Northwestern in the end zone. Like once you said that, I remember having that feeling watching the Rose Bowl. So that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, this is your chance to kind of, you know, vent a little bit. What do the national writers, there's, I feel there's a lot to go off of here for you. What, what do the national writers and podcasters, what do they get wrong the most about Northwestern football? Well, first of all, and this might seem like a little thing, but you ask any Northwestern person, it's not, we are NU, it is not NW. So the whole, I mean, I get where that might come from, but it's Northwestern University. So, and, and to be factually correct, um, Northwestern, not just as a Big Ten member, but as a member of collegiate athletics was around before Nebraska. So, uh, you know, we, we like to claim that we are the original NU. So for anybody who's listening, who has habitually put Northwestern down as the NW, it's NU. So please make sure of, of all things, you get that right. Um, I, uh, Chappie, Chappie just making friends with a couple different fan bases here so far, but you know, as I knew, obviously I knew Northwestern was the first in the big 10. I didn't know that they were the first university to be NU as well. So that's always learn something when I'm talking to you, Chappie. And uh, so the other thing is, and this might be something that you were thinking about, Greek, was um, really getting overlooked and undervalued after success. So here's the point I want to try and make. Since 2015, Northwestern has finished the season ranked in the AP coaches poll and the college football playoff rankings four times. Do you know how many times they've been ranked in the preseason to start the following season since 2015? 
So you're talking the following season after finishing ranked. I, yeah, I or, or, or any season between 2015 and even this year in 2021. Yeah, I, I would have They've to been ranked zero point. times in yeah. the preseason poll. Now, now I, I can understand if Northwestern was a, a school or a program that maybe was kind of like a one-hit wonder, and, and I'm not trying to alienate Indiana fans, but, you know, Indiana um, has recently earned their success, and they have been ranked pretty high in preseason polls this year. So since 2015, Northwestern um, has the uh, fifth most wins in the Big Ten since 2015. Um, and ahead of them is Ohio State, Wisconsin, Penn State, and Iowa. And all of those teams except for Ohio State with Northwestern have finished the season ranked four times. And every one of those teams has been ranked to start any season since 2015 um, at least three times. So Iowa's been ranked in the preseason three times since 2015. Michigan's been ranked five times. Um, Penn State's been ranked four times. Wisconsin's been ranked five times. But all of those teams that I just mentioned have finished the regular season at some point since 2015, ranked the same number of times as Northwestern, yet Northwestern continually does not get the preseason love. But I say that uh, as a point of pride, because that's exactly, and I know you guys have touched on it, you and, and Kurt um, have touched on that. That's exactly what Northwestern wants. And that's in Fitzy's DNA. So he, you know, he was overlooked coming out of Orland Park, Illinois, wanted to go to Notre Dame. They basically spurned him, gave his scholarship that they promised him to somebody else. And so he's been brought up that way and he wouldn't have it any other way, but I still find it kind of odd that since 2015 with three 10 win seasons with two big 10 West titles, two appearances in the big 10 championship, three or four bowl victories. And not once have they even gotten like maybe a bone thrown their way at number 25. But again, you know, they, they've made it work. And so maybe that's something that I, I don't exactly wish upon them. And, and um, you know, we'll see where it goes from there. But I, I just find that kind of odd that the national writers and even some of the big 10 writers wouldn't at least maybe um, say, okay, well, there, there's a trend that we're seeing here, but still no top 25, preseason ranking in the last six seasons especially with the journal and school, journalism school northwestern has and you know sports writers and whatnot right. they've put out into the universe you think it would a tide would turn at some point um and the last right. thing i want to point out is i appreciated the dramatic pause when you were listing off the teams that start the year ranked but don't end the year ranked there was a dramatic pause on michigan i just wanted to make sure you know i did pick that up so good good job okay <laughs> Good. <laughs> All right. So that'll get us on to kind of, you know, focusing on the upcoming season. What excites you the most about the 2021 version of Northwestern football? Well, because Northwestern is a defensive team, I'm going to start on defense with their secondary. I think that they bring back one of the best ones in the Big Ten, not the best, but one of the best with Brandon Joseph, who's an All-American. Cam Mitchell and A.J. Hampton are two very underrated corners on the outside. And then Coco Azima, I think, is also a very underrated safety. Um, you know, he's, he's just a great athlete. He's a guy who ran for nearly 200 against Illinois in his freshman season, and he was pressed into emergency duty. And then once they, they had that depth back there, you know, they moved him back over to safety, and he was a starter last year. And, and I think most people outside of Evanston probably couldn't name Azima as a starter, but he was um, – you know, played quite a bit last year. So that excites me, but I'm also excited about Ryan Helinski coming in at quarterback. 
I mean, I was excited for Peyton Ramsey, but I was excited because Ramsey was a winner. Holinsky, I think, is not only somebody who can be a winner in this program, but he brings a lot more of the physical tools um, than, than Ramsey had. And I think even from my perspective, more tools than Hunter Johnson had when he transferred over from Clemson. I, you know, with all due respect to the kid, I, I think he was way overhyped. And I think that that was overblown. I think that Holinsky is a little bit more true to the tale of the tape that we're getting from him. So I'm excited to see him and what he can do in Mike Bajakian's offense in year two under coach Jake. And obviously he brings us a ton more experience than Hunter Johnson ever did too. So yeah, I mean, as a, uh, as a fan of a big 10 team, and I think I could probably speak for anybody in the division, not named Northwestern, we're kind of tired of you guys finding these uh, seasoned vets to come in at quarterback, but you know, third time's a, a, a charm. We'll see what happens this year. Sure. All right. So then, yeah, that gets us to the other side. Maybe I should start with the negative first, but what, what maybe concerns you a little bit about going into the 2021 season? Well, it's replacing those two linebackers, Patty Fisher and Blake Gallagher. And, and I really should have named it Gallagher first because he, to me, was the epitome of linebacker. I think that he was more of the traditional Northwestern linebacker that you're used to seeing. He was kind of like, you know, Fitz 2.0, if you will, just a great tackler. Fisher was a lot better athlete, uh, better in coverage, but I think that Gallagher was really the heart and soul. They do bring back Chris Bergen, who took advantage of the extra year granted by the NCAA because of the COVID season. Um, Gallagher's younger brother, Bryce, is a good one up and coming. He's probably going to start there's also a, a redshirt freshman, Cullen Coleman, who was recruited to play running back at Alabama and Notre Dame, but decided to come to Northwestern. I'm excited to see what he can do. And then Khalid Jones is um, a guy who's been in the program for a while. He was, I think, a four-star coming out of South Carolina. He was, um, you know, won all kinds of accolades in the state and played in a couple all-star games, injuries, and, you know, obviously the talent ahead of him has held him back a little bit, but a new defensive coordinator, Jim O'Neill, said that he had a great spring and he's really excited for what he can bring at that middle linebacker position. But again, keep it, keep an eye out for Cullen Coleman. He's somebody who uh, physically matches up most with what Patty Fisher looked like. And I think athletically is probably one of the best athletes that they've had in a while. And that includes Anthony Walker, who's playing on Sundays right now. So the question was, uh, what concerns you? But it sounds like you're kind of excited about the linebackers even though you're replacing quite a bit I'm, I'm excited but there's definitely inexperience and and I think that you know especially with a new coordinator coming in like if it was if it was still Mike Hankowitz running that defense I would feel a little bit better and I it's not to say that I don't have confidence in Jim O'Neill but he's coming from the NFL so it's not like he's even coming from a, a collegiate level where he was at a Wisconsin or he was at um, you know, a place where, you know, in the collegiate ranks that they've done well, he's coming as a position coach from the NFL, uh, but he was handpicked by Fitzgerald and, and, you know, in Fitz we trust. So I'm, I'm going to have the trust there, but the inexperience early on, especially with how heavy their, their schedule starts out, open up against Michigan State um, and then going to Nebraska and then playing, you know, Minnesota and Michigan and then Iowa in uh, November those are all games that, you know, you, you circle and you, you kind of get nervous for every year in a good way. So. So uh, one thing I just touch on maybe quick, cause this is where maybe I thought you would go is uh, I think it's fair to say, even with the success Northwesterns have the, the lack of explosiveness out of the skill positions on offense seems to be there. Uh, thoughts on that this upcoming year. 
Yeah, I'm not worried about running back because Cam Porter had uh, a good three-game stretch at the end of the season, and not just statistically, but the way that he runs the ball. He's very – he's explosive, but he's also not afraid to initiate contact. And I think that uh, Evan Hull, as his backup, is is very undervalued, very underrated. And then they also get Anthony Tyus coming in as a as a freshman who was in for spring, and, and he's kind of a, a bigger back as well. But, yeah, the receiver position really uh, concerns me. Um, and I didn't list that first simply because, you know, defense is the hallmark of this program. But, yeah, they really have not had that uh, explosive or that um, fear-inspiring wide receiver really since Austin Carr. And, and even a lot of people who are Big Ten fans might forget who Austin Carr was because he was kind of that one-year, one-hit wonder. Um, but, yeah, they, they don't have to have the receiver to blow the lid off the top of it, but at least make it rattle a little bit, right, you know? Um, I mean, Halinski's got to have threats to throw to. And, you know, there's a couple guys, J.J. Jefferson and Malik Washington, who have been around the program. They've been hampered by injury a little bit. They've got the potential. But again, that's the P word that uh, Fitzgerald really doesn't like to hear. He wants to see productivity. That's the P word we want to go on. So um, they might have to turn to some of the incoming freshmen guys like Jordan Mosley or Calvin Johnson, the second, no relation. Um, maybe those guys step up. Uh, a guy like Genson Hooper-Price who's from Houston, who's, um, you know, had some issues with drops, but he certainly got the, the, the length and the athleticism on the outside to be a threat, but we just haven't seen it yet. All right. Fair enough. And then last question, we know you're one of college football's preeminent prognosticators. So now we're going to put it to Northwestern. What's, what's your prediction for the record or just overall success of the season? Well, I, I've, gone through the entire Big Ten, and I've fine-tooth combed it about every way that I can. And I think realistically, Northwestern, we're looking at a 7-5 and five season, 4-5 and five in the Big Ten. I see it that puts them at fifth in the West. Now, I know that there's a lot of Northwestern listeners right now that are, are, are probably thinking terrible things about me, but, you know, the, the trouble games that I see are at Nebraska. Um, and I'm not saying that Nebraska is a better team, but I think the way that that falls on the schedule um, – you know, playing in Lincoln is a place where Fitz has has had somewhat success, but I really don't know what to read on the Cornhuskers this year. I mean, Adrian Martinez can be an all Big Ten quarterback finally again, or he can be, um, you know, benched after week three and we see a, a youth movement there. Michigan State's a team that I really don't have any good read on. And I would I really wish that Northwestern was opening up or playing them at any other point in the season. But they've got um, a new defensive coordinator. Uh, word is that they're running an up-tempo offense now. And so with Northwestern, starting with a, a new defensive coordinator, that game kind of scares me a little bit. Michigan, we've never played well, and that game's in Ann Arbor. I think the Wolverines will be back this year. I hate to say it. Um, I think Minnesota could po pose problems. And then Wisconsin, I think, is the, the class of the Big Ten West, them and Iowa. Um, now, I do think that they, they get the Wildcats get the better of the Hawkeyes this year. But again, I think that's maybe just how the, the game lands on the schedule. It is in Ryan field um northwestern has won um four of the last five against the hawkeyes and I, I know that you know that so um that's a game that it could swing either way and and it's funny greek because if they beat minnesota northwestern finishes third in the west if they beat minnesota and nebraska they finish second behind wisconsin in my opinion so um a lot can move up or down but if, if you're putting the um proverbial gun to my head now i'm saying seven and five and fifth in the big ten west and that's why I kind of preempted, you know, telling people about how you don't just know Northwestern, you're, you know, 
as a fan of a specific team, we all do this. We, we concentrate on that team and we forget that other teams in the division, you know, they're able to field offenses, defenses, and special teams as well. Um, So obviously you broke that down really well. I think what you're kind of alluding to, like with you just added at the end there, just a game here too makes a gigantic difference in the West when we've got three, four, five teams that are stacked on top of each other. Like we think they will be. Right. Yep. All right, man. That gets us to the end of the questions. Really, really appreciate coming on. Is there anything else you want to add? I uh, just want to give a shameless plug for my book, Champion Underdog. It's about the 1995 Northwestern football season. So really, I mean, if you're a fan of college football at all, uh, you don't have to, you may not have even ever heard of Northwestern before, but it's just a really cool story. It's, it's not just about the team, but the individual players and, and the things that they had to overcome. So some, some of you might be in, in fan bases where you're kind of hoping for that turnaround season. And, and it's just a, a really good look back at college football history. And, and if you like college football at all, it's, it's, it's a great thing. So um, you can find it on Amazon and it's, it's real cheap. Mow, mow a lawn or two and, and you'll be able to make the money for it. Fantastic, man. Thanks for getting that in there. Would have forgot myself. Uh, you got Kurt the Illini to read it. So it, trust me, anybody on the planet can read it. That's right. <laughs> All right. That is Chappie. I am Jeffrey DeGree. Thank you very much. All right. We are now joined by our resident Rutgers know-it-all. And I mean that in good terms. This is Chop. And his Twitter follows Chop at Chop Nighttime. Chop, how you doing, man? Okay, great. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for joining us. Uh, first thing I got to start out with is obviously, you know, you became a Twitter celebrity even more so than you already were this week with the, the infamous big game boomer uh, Twitter handle uh, giving you the title. He, he listed off the most sensitive fan from every fan base and you won the award for Rutgers. So congratulations, Chop. Thanks. Uh, I don't know if it's a dubious award, but thanks anyway. <laughs> <laughs> like we were talking offline. I think you are the most prominent Rutgers football fan on Twitter. So he just basically plucked the lowest hanging fruit. So I would take it more as a compliment than anything. Yeah, I'll take any compliment I can get, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we all roll like that. So yeah. yeah, thanks for joining us. You're obviously, you know, when we uh, set out to do this, our thing was, you know, we wanted to find somebody to listen to the podcast. That's great. But really is just a, a true fan of the team. You are obviously a true Rutgers fan, you know, so we're happy to have you on. Happy to have you represent Rutgers football. Oh, great. Thanks for uh, choosing me and uh, hopefully we can get some good insight here. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We'll jump right in. So the first one is kind of get to get, let people get to know you. Um, uh, so basically just tell us why you're Rutgers football fan. And then as best you can, maybe just try to fold that into what's your best memory of, of following Rutgers football. Okay. So I guess I'm, I'm a lifelong uh, Jersey resident. So I've been a Rutgers fan from way back in the time. I don't want to give my age to tell you how long, but I guess I'll tell the story when it goes to most memorable game and you could figure it out from there. But um, let's see, started following Rutgers football, probably late seventies, early eighties, uh, attending games, uh, a family member also attended Rutgers and wound up um, um, doing an internship and then also working for the football program. So it's okay. another insight from the Shiano uh, 1.0 days. Okay. Before, before he left. Um, 
So I go way back to the Frank Burns days when uh, he was a head coach of, of Rutgers and uh, Rutgers played in the Ivy League-esque uh, stadium at, uh, in New Brunswick, but also played some games back at uh, the Meadowlands in the original Giant Stadium. So that probably goes to my most memorable Rutgers game. I'm sure everybody says, ah, if you're a Rutgers fan, you probably think the 2006 Louisville game, which I was there, um, nice. was the most memorable game. However, I'm going I'm to choose a different one. And people probably don't even know this game too much. In 1980, both Rutgers and Alabama were 4-0. Wow. And Rutgers played Alabama at Giant Stadium 1 the original Meadowlands. Okay. It's 65,000 people. Um, Rutgers had some minor success a few years prior to that. Back in 76, they went undefeated, 11-0, and uh, they were trying to climb out of the Ivy League tag, I guess, uh, mantra, and try to enter, quote-unquote, big-time football, though that was uh, the early infancy stages of doing that. And they played Alabama. Alabama, of course, as usual, uh, was ranked number one at the time. And the game came down to a final play. The Rutgers had the ball on the third down and fourth down in the, in the final seconds of the game and threw a pass in the end zone and went off the receiver's hand. And they wound up losing the game 17-13. I think the great Bear Bryant quote at the end of the game is was, we might have won the game in the scoreboard, but we lost the game on the field. It was probably – the one of the best, it, it definitely my most memorable Rutgers game. And after the game, the week after Rutgers wound up, and probably nobody even knows this, ranked number five in the poll after after that loss in 1980. Chop, man, you know, you know, a little bit before my time, but I didn't know any of that. That is that is some phenomenal history and background. I'm I'm kind of sitting here with my with my mouth open, and I did. I figured you would talk about. The 2006 game, that's more in my wheelhouse. I, I yeah. remember that, you know, watching that game intently. But holy cow, what a, a, a history lesson right there. Thanks for showing or, or telling us about that, man. Yeah, you can look it up in the – I don't know if there's – there's probably a YouTube uh, video of it. I, I didn't look myself. It was a 17-13 final score. It was a great game. Um, and they were the – the infamous, you know, ball off the fingertips in the end zone. The guy dropped the ball. I forgot the receiver's name. Wide open, and then would have given probably the upset of their probably their program history at the time. But they wound up number five next week in the poll after that. Were you, were you there for that? Oh game? yeah, oh yeah. And I could tell you that there was some. Even though Alabama won, there was some many unhappy Alabama fans at the end of the game that the game sure. was even that close. <laughs> but it was, it was a crazy game. Yeah. I remember that people don't even probably even remember the Rutgers played Alabama in 1980. No, I think I, my guess is whoever listens to this segment a large percentage of people will learn that. So I, I, again, that was awesome, man. Um, yeah. So then that kind of folds us into this next question, which, you know, right there is kind of an example. Nobody even knows about that game, but you know, what about the national media, national podcasts, writers, what have you, what do they get wrong the most about Rutgers or, or maybe just kind of a trope that annoys you a lot? Uh, I think it's still the stigma. Um, and I'm sure a lot of uh, old time blue blood, big 10 fans will probably think the same um, that the New Jersey, New York area is not um, college football uh, territory. I guess I'll say, and it, it's not 
media centric for college football. And I guess in some ways that is a little bit true because this media market here is so saturated with pro football, baseball, hockey, basketball. There's two of everything. There's two baseball teams. There's two basketball teams. There's three hockey teams. And pro sports does got, dominate the uh, pretty much the airwaves a lot here. But when their college football team is uh, relevant, and I think Rutgers joining the Big Ten has changed that, even though the, they haven't been that great of the product on the field, uh, that's changed a lot. And people are more in tuned in this market. And when I say the market, the market here is kind of weird. It goes from New York, New Jersey is one market, and South Jersey is the Philly market. And that whole market, if, if Rutgers is relevant, is tuned to college football and their viewership. And I think that's how Rutgers did wind up in the Big Ten is based on viewership from even when they did have moderate success. And the uh, media numbers pretty much portray that. So that is the biggest misconception that people think that college football will never be uh, something that the media will embrace in this market. And I think uh, if you go back down to 2006 and the years of Shiano's initial success, that uh, is proven, you know, false. So to me, even more reason on why Shiano 2.0 is such a huge hire, because I can't think anybody better to, you know, plug in the old with where Rutgers and the Big Ten is going than Shiano with him being, you know, a Jersey guy through and through. Right. Usually reboots, the 2.0s a lot of times don't work. But because Rutgers is such a strange and college football in this area is such a strange uh, animal, I guess you could say, is that Shiano is what everybody has imprinted success, college football, Jersey, New York area is him. And that doesn't just go back with the fan base that goes back with all the high school coaches. And a lot of the kids don't know that because of the age gap, but uh, a lot of the same high school coaches are still entrenched, still in the same power programs. And we all know New Jersey is probably one of the biggest, one of the top five, the top three um, high school recruiting hotbeds and the whole thing to be successful here. You don't have to get every great New Jersey four and five star, but even if you get the inroads to the four stars, which he's already done, that's the key to success. Keeping a local New Jersey recruits home. Yeah. um, I mean, honestly, we've opened up a whole new thing here. We could keep talking on this alone, but let me just ask one, one more thing and we'll move on. Do you feel that just since Rutgers has been in the big 10, there has been somewhat of a groundswell of people paying more attention to college football. And do you think there's potential for it to just keep growing? Sure. I think when they joined the big 10, there was a lot of excitement, season tickets, media all pushed it and it took off and it was going well. And I hate to talk bad about the guy. And then Chris Sash took over and he was just a disaster with a capital D. He didn't understand anything of, uh, New Jersey football and the ties and the uh, just the background of it. And he just had a full head uh, mantra of mindset of how things were done at Ohio state. And it was that way or the highway and it didn't work here. And it was a, you know, a round peg in a square hole and he just didn't get it. And yep. he turned more people off 
fan base and I think media wise than, than any, anybody else I can remember in, in recent memory. Fit, fit matters. I mean, it's just, doesn't matter where it's at. It, it, it makes a big difference. So, okay, man, that's great insight. Uh, so now we'll kind of move on to the 2021 version of the Rutgers Scarlet Knights. What excites you the most about this football team? Uh, I'm going to say something that people are going to, you know, everybody thinks, uh, you know, everybody's still high on the Shannon's back bandwagon, but the thing that uh, people should be still excited. And I think a lot of the in tune fan base, and I think so a lot of the college people that, that know is the return that Sean Gleason, the offensive coordinator is staying for another year and he's a hot commodity. And I, wouldn't be surprised if you see him in the next year and a half somewhere as a head coach or back in the NFL, probably in the NFL as an offensive coordinator because the guy's a whiz. And if you saw what he did first and everybody's going to say, oh, Princeton, big deal. But if Princeton put up off the chart numbers when he was there and everybody said, ah, it's Princeton, then he went to Oklahoma State and did the same thing. I mean, the guy is what he has to work with the records. He did wonders last year in a COVID year and a minimal amount of talent. And now this year would a lot of transfers and one year of recruiting under uh, Shiano and his, under his uh, tutelage. I think uh, Sean Gleason is the thing to be most excited about other than players development per se. I mean, him coming back, I think is awesome. He's. Yeah. That is, that is fantastic insight. I hope he has a quarterback, you know, that he can work with. Um, even the best play caller has got to have the right pieces in place. Certainly, Shiano's doing everything he can to help him out with that. But, yeah, that that is great, great insight. Um, and maybe this kind of folds into the next question, but what, what concerns you the most about the upcoming football team? Well, I'll answer that, and it probably goes back to the question before. So concern and – Rutgers is going to stick with Noah uh, Vedral at quarterback pretty much because uh, in that hinges all on who they, they have not signed, but recruited. They put all their eggs in the basket of Wimsett that they've recruited from Kentucky, the four-star quarterback. And they pretty much told him they weren't going to recruit anybody else at quarterback. So they were planning on getting a grad transfer to be the quarterback for this season. And since they landed him, they, pulled back that idea. So it's Noah Bedrill's season and he's going to be the quarterback. What concerns me is that behind him, uh, Art Sikowski, who saw a lot of time last year, he's transferred out. So behind Noah Bedrill is unproven two other kids. So if he gets hurt, they're really going to be uh, in trouble. That's concern one. Concern two is while the offensive line is, uh, has more depth, the actual placement of some of the line, or is there's a lot of movement between people between guard, tackle, center. Um, it's a, they return a lot of the same kids from last year and got a good transfer from Temple. Um, I have a lineman who played a lot at Temple. Um, uh, David Nugolo Wawa, I can have a hard time saying his last name. Right, and right. Uh, he's actually, uh, he's probably going to start also, but yeah, lack of quarterback depth and, um, I would say line, they have to straighten uh, the positions uh, correctly. They have they have some good recruits coming in, and also they have to be able to run the ball. They finished last year 20th in the Big Ten in yards per game. So right. that's you without having a quarterback that can light it up downfield, which Noah Bedrill is a game manager, and he's an average quarterback. He's not going to light up the uh, field 
uh, with his passing ability. So they have to be able to run the ball, and that goes yeah. back to the offensive line. Yeah, I think it's got to be somewhat of a ball control thing. I might be a little bit higher on Vedral than than my podcast partner, maybe even you. I, I think he's as good as you could hope for for somewhat of a transition quarterback stopgap, if you will. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I hope there's a formula in there that works where it's something that you know sets up an improved rushing attack, you know, an improved defensive front against the rushing attack to get that a little bit of momentum to build into the next couple years when the new quarterback comes in. So um, I think that's all the interesting stuff. And I mean, there's nobody better to, to, to manage that and get that going. than Shiano um, we talked about, we've talked about a lot on the podcast and I'll say it here again, just to get your thoughts, the difference between how Rutgers did look and then how they looked last year under Shiano was borderline night and day. Oh yeah, without a doubt. I mean, well, the, I, you know, first it, it's a culture thing, and the players have to buy in. And I think all the kids bought bought in right away when Shano came back, and that was a big thing. I think a lot of the kids didn't buy in under the Asher at all, and uh, there was a lot of, I guess, uh, people just showing up and going through the motions and hitting the transfer portal portal when uh, Ash was there. And I think everybody knew he was on borrowed time, and he wasn't a fit there culturally, and. Uh, but when Shadow came, uh, people bought in. Uh, Shadow brought back a lot of uh, his staff that he had with him at Rutgers the first time and then brought to Tampa Bay along, sprinkled with a couple of guys that were with him at Ohio State um, and a few ex-players. And it worked. And, you know, recruiting-wise, it's working. And Sean Gleason's another reason on the offense where the defense doesn't have to be out there majority of the game. The offense can actually get some first downs. <laughs> and get the, uh, keep the defense off the field. Yep. And uh, that's the big difference. And um, I mean, this year we'll see uh, Gleason tries to run a 12 uh, personnel offense and Rutgers tried that last year, but because the line wasn't that great, the two tight ends had a blocking duty. And you saw in the spring game I went to already. And again, you can't take, take too much from a spring game, but the tight ends were definitely involved as offensive weapons and throwing the ball down the field to them. And that's going to be a big difference from a 12 personnel to one run running back actually have the tight ends as a viable option to catch the ball. And I think this year the line will be good enough where the tight ends can actually be pass catchers instead of just blockers. But yet probably lean towards a more ball control offense to again, mitigate injuries, help out the defense, make the overall, you know, cohesion look a little bit better. True. And I mean, it was pretty funny how bad the line was. I think one of Shannon's quotes was when he got there, he goes, when we, when I first got here and took over the program, he said, we had more wide receivers than we had offensive linemen. Yeah. So that's how bad the offensive line was. Yep. All right. So we'll get to it now. Last question. What, what's your prediction for the 2021 season, how they're going to look, you know, record, whatever you want to go with it. Go ahead. Well, um, I think they have a chance to win five to seven games. Um, their special teams will be really good. Um, and if they can get a couple of the guys, which I think they're trying to do from the special teams and put them in the offense, Aaron Crookshanks, a bona fide NFL uh, talent. And they tried using him a lot. The jet sweeps, wide receiver. And I think he's going to be back in the offense more. And they transfer from Kansas, who was a big 12 special teams player in 2019, Youngblood, Josh Youngblood. And I think they're going to try to use him also from the offensive side. So they have some winnable games. Um, 
in their uh, schedule, they open at home against Temple. They should possibly win that game. They travel to Syracuse. I don't think Syracuse is kind of in a rebuild mode themselves. They play at home against Delaware. Those three games, they get off a decent start. They then play uh, at Michigan, home to Ohio State, and then come back home and play against Michigan State. So they could possibly win four of those first one, two, three, four, five, six games possibly. If they do, that's a big springboard to get getting to five to six to seven wins. And I think that's the hope is between a five to seven win mark, depending on Noah Vedral stays healthy. All right. Fair enough. Um, yeah, that's great insight. I mean, I, obviously with Rutgers, you hope to see that they win the winnable games this year um, and then start doing pretty, you know, decent on the jump ball games. And then, by you know, if they can get a, a big boy somewhere in there, maybe not so much Ohio State, but if, you know, a, a, another a big opponent in there, that would be something that would just ignite even more excitement around the football program. Yeah, I mean, they historically recently, even under Ash, uh, have success against Indiana for some strange reason. Uh, they played Indiana, uh, Illinois, and Maryland still on, on the Big Ten schedule, and those are all jump games that they could possibly win along with the Michigan State game. I mean, not saying they're going to, but possibility. I doubt that you know they're going to win Ohio State or Wisconsin or Penn State as much as they want to beat Penn State because that is pretty much historically, even before – uh, Rutgers joined the Big Ten as Rutgers' biggest rival is Penn State geographically and the amount of uh, alumni in the Jersey area from yeah. Penn State. So yep. there's a big, there's no like between those two programs yep. <laughs> at all. I picked that up. I've, I've, <laughs> yeah. I've spent enough time on the East Coast to pick that up. So yeah, that's that's uh, that, that's a big rivalry. Yeah. All right, uh, fantastic, man. You got anything else you want to add? Uh, no, pretty much. Uh, hopefully uh, we actually have a season with everybody fans in the stands and uh, there's no more COVID mess to ruin the season. And uh, I don't know. It, we'll see what happens. You never know until you get out there and play the games, right? Absolutely. And I am on board with you there. All right. This has been Chop for Rutgers. I'm Jeffrey the Greek. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk to you soon. All right. So there were three excellent interviews. Again, I, I know I'm I said this already. I'm going to say it again. We have the best listeners on the planet. How good were those interviews? Home run, all three of them. Right. Back to back to back home runs. So, and you know, all different flavor. Perk, uh, I felt like Perk did a great job through the whole thing, but I felt the part that I was most excited for him to answer, which was him to get a chance to kind of voice his annoyance with the things that he hears about Penn State. He didn't disappoint me. He, he hit a home run there, kind of pointing out the recruiting rankings as compared to where Penn State has been, right? I mean, he did a great job. Yeah, he did. I mean, he, he's, he had everyone dead to rights, man. Yep, he was prepared. Some, some good info to back it up. Um, and then Chappie, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, Chappie could have been a segment all on his own. He knew everything about Northwestern. He's got the names. He's got the stats. He even gets into, you know, Couple other teams, he knows it all. Chappie was Chappie. Well, the thing about Chappie is, as much as he knows about Northwestern, he he knows more than that about all of college football. I think that's you can you can literally ask him about any team, and he'll tell you he'll, he'll give you an opinion on. It. 
He'll even get some group of five in there. I mean, I think me. Oh, you, he gets a lot of group in five. Oh yeah. Five I think five. me, you, and Chappie could go round around the Big Ten, and you know we would all hang with each other. But once you got outside the Big Ten, me and you would would take a backseat to Chappie. I mean, he knows it all. So. Yeah, and it's it's like he doesn't just know the starting quarterback at Tulsa. He can right. tell you about the the safety that's hurt, and we, we <laughs> we're, the depth's not that great this year. And then last but not least, our boy Chop. Um, I mean, he just, the, I mean, the whole thing was good. He broke down Rutgers and everything perfectly, but how cool is it that he could tell the story about being in stadium for that 1980 Rutgers Alabama game? Yeah. Cool story. And I'm jealous because I was originally supposed to interview chop and you got to do it. Yeah. Sorry, man. It just kind of schedule worked out like that. Yeah. Um, not your fault. It just happened. But I tell you what, like what I hope is that, you know, Nebraska fans and Michigan fans and and whoever like I hope they a couple people listen to the chop segment and it got a feel that I got which is like hey man Rutgers has got some football history as well I thought I thought he did a good job of laying that out yeah they do and the other thing that you know we just keep mentioning on the eyes on big podcast is watch out for Rutgers man because yeah. they're they're on a resurgence right now absolutely all right man you got anything else no sir I am Jeffrey the Greek. I am Big Kurt. This has been the Eyes on Big Podcast. We will talk to you soon.